0: I don't think anybody in the industry was not not aware of what happened that night at J.P. Morgan.
1: That night at J.P. Morgan, the big industry conference we told you about a few episodes ago, well, it threw an unexpected spotlight onto a simmering issue in science and business, gender diversity, sexism. I'm Meg Terrell.
2: And I'm Luke Timmerman, and you're listening to Signal. Today, we take you back to San Francisco, where one night during the annual conference, an investor relations group called LifeSci Advisors threw a party for clients.
1: Well, parties happen every night at J.P. Morgan, but this one stood out, because in addition to all the investors and executives that you'd expect, there were scantily clad female models. The organizers told Bloomberg News, quote,
2: When you think about going to a party, when you don't have any models, it's going to be a 90-10 or even greater male-to-female. Adding in some females changes the dynamic quite a bit.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this did not sit well. A couple weeks later, BioCentury, a trade magazine, published an open letter denouncing the party itself, saying literally, we can't believe it's 2016 and we have to spend our time writing this letter. It was signed by more than 200 prominent venture capitalists, executives, investors, and others in the industry, both male and female.
2: So this might sound like a one-off thing. Yes, it's ridiculous. But hopefully this doesn't happen all the time, right? Wrong. We talked with a lot of women in biotech for this show who shared stories of facing blatant sexism in the workplace.
1: We also talked with those who've experienced the non-blatant kind, the kind of unintentional baked-in biases that can often do as much or even more damage.
2: That voice at the top of the show, that's Annalisa Jenkins, and she's the CEO of Dimension Therapeutics, a biotech company working on gene therapies for rare diseases.
1: So this company, LifeSci Advisors, was publicly reprimanded. Industry figures expressed their outrage. Many people thought biotech had learned an important lesson.
0: So let's wind forward a month, six weeks. So I attend the Roth Conference in Laguna Beach. We go to the check-in desk, sign up. I was there with my head of commercial and my chief financial officer, three women. So we walked to the desk and we were handed our free gift. Three boxes of male boxer shorts brand naked on them. And I looked at the young people that were handing over the gifts, and I said, is this the free gift? Male, boxer, shorts? Is the term naked on them? And they said, yes, yes. And I said, well, where is the gift for the women at the event?" And they said, well, you can always give that to your boyfriend or your husband.
1: Can you hear me rolling my eyes? Clueless, right? But these aren't isolated incidents. Let's examine the depth of the problem behind them. At the top 40 pharmaceutical companies in North America and Europe, women hold just 16% of senior management roles, according to an editorial last year in the journal Nature Biotech.
2: Among the top 10 biggest biotech companies, it's only slightly better. Just under 18% of senior managers are women.
1: But what about startups? They're all about outside-the-box thinking, right? Well, Nature Biotech says of the 10 companies that raised the most money in 2014 through IPOs, women held just under 19% of all senior management roles.
3: You know, if you look at the raw numbers, you can't ignore the fact that it's not wholly balanced, either in terms of gender or, or other forms of diversity as well.
1: Katrine Bosley is CEO of Editas Medicine a young biotech company working in the super hot field of gene editing. And she makes an important point. Even though we're talking mainly about women in this episode, they're not the only ones underrepresented in the drug industry.
3: And I think that when you're doing something as complex and difficult as discovering and developing new drugs, there's there's little that we do as a human endeavor that's more challenging than trying to find and, and develop new drugs. You know, you want to do everything you can to stack the deck in favor of success. And I think that diverse perspectives is part of that.
1: So if biotech is going to take on the huge challenge of combating deadly diseases and improving human health, it's got to have the brightest minds at the table. And they can't all just be white men.
2: So what accounts for this extreme imbalance? It's not that women don't go into science. Women earn half of the PhDs in science in the U.S., according to the National Science Foundation. But as you go up the ranks in academia, the imbalance grows. Just 21% of full science professors and about 5% of full engineering professors are women.
1: So the issue with biotech is that it takes the imbalance we see in STEM academia and adds yet another
0: layer. So I think that today we're at a moment in time where the three key stakeholder groups, the investment banking sector, the investor sector, and really the senior leadership and management sector in the companies themselves are grossly dominated
2: by men. That imbalance can make this industry feel like a good old boys club. And that can lead to some overtly sexist behavior, like the party we talked about at the top of the show.
1: But many women in biotech are experiencing discrimination on a daily basis in far more subtle ways. They're victims of unconscious bias. With most
4: industries, um, as people rise, it's easier, perhaps for the people looking at hiring, to hire people who look more like them, who have had similar roles to them and, and who are networked in the same areas. So I think there's a little bit of intrinsic, sort of unconscious bias through that.
2: That's Deborah Dunsire, CEO of Forum Pharmaceuticals, a company focused on drugs for Alzheimer's and other brain diseases. Dunsire points out that even though biotech is known for taking bets on risky science, it's pretty risk averse when it comes to recruiting someone unfamiliar to their leadership team.
4: You know, if you've seen a pattern that was successful, the next time you're going to look for that pattern and you're more likely to fund it. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, success breeds success. And so much harder then to look at something that has a very different pattern, uh, your woman founder, and say, oh, it injects a level of risk because you haven't seen that pattern be successful
2: yet. You have to hope this kind of thing isn't intentional. But unfortunately, we heard some stories to the contrary.
5: Um, I mean, the one that was just, that really blew me away was um, the, I don't want to deal with you because you're a woman.
2: Miriam Bohr is the founder and chief technology officer of Sonify Biosciences, a private company working on a device to treat melanoma and other skin cancers.
5: That like really just absolutely blew my mind because, I mean, of all the things you could be doing with a startup, like I'm... Studying a cancer treatment, and it just is absolutely incredible to me that that like my gender trumps possibly funding something that can save lives.
1: Bohr says some potential investors are less overt; they just prefer to deal with her male collaborator.
5: I mean, you know, my collaborator. I mean, he's he's said to me numerous times that coming to these meetings with me and seeing this stuff happen. It's definitely been you know he's gotten a front seat to uh, to seeing it and when you see it and you start to see it and you start to have it pointed out um, it you kind of you of, you can't look away you see it everywhere
1: so it's kind of been weird for me I've actually been feeling that way myself working on this episode. Talking with all these folks about what their experiences have been like with sexism in the industry has made me start to think more about this issue sort of in my daily life and think, wait, was that sexist or am I just thinking more about this now? And it's actually kind of uncomfortable. It's something that you don't really want to have to think about all the time.
2: So Meg, I have to tell you, one time in my career, I remember being the distinct minority in the room. This was for a chapter opening event for an organization called Women in Bio. And I headlined an article about this, 200 women and five men. (laughs) And I'll tell you that I felt really unusual, weird, a little uncomfortable in that room. And I wonder, is that, I mean, you find yourself in environments like this all the time where there's a lot of men and and very few people who uh, look like you. How, How does that feel?
1: You know, practice makes perfect. I have so much experience being in those situations. You just get extremely used to it. And that's something that I heard from a lot of the women we spoke with for this episode. It's that maybe because thinking about it is really uncomfortable and it can hamper you from getting done what you need to get done, you just try not to think about it too much. And you just think about, you know, what am I doing here? What am I trying to accomplish? Who's interesting? Who's got something cool going on? Who do I want to talk to? Although there is something about, especially being at J.P. Morgan, walking into a room and heads turn because, oh, there's a woman here. And you know, maybe you're one of five out of 200, just like you were one of five men out of 200 women.
2: Yeah, you know, I would say that this is a pretty big blind spot for me and most men. We, we don't go around thinking about gender issues very often. But I will say that when I was the distinct minority in the room, There was some weirdness around it and people were friendly. They invited me there. But I'll say when I went up to approach a small group of women in biotech who were socializing, networking, I would approach and you could tell that a chill entered the room or the area. They kind of stopped and stiffened up a little and, you know, changed the conversation. And maybe that was because I was a man or maybe it was because I'm a reporter or both. I mean, it was hard to say, but it opened my eyes to my own blind spot.
1: Have you ever felt like you have to repeat yourself several times before people will listen to you or take your point? No, no. That's something that I feel a lot, and sometimes I wonder if it's because I'm a younger person in the industry. Sometimes I wonder if it's because I'm a woman. Most of the time, I try not to think about it.
2: I mean, have you ever had people behave in an overtly sexist fashion toward you in your job as a reporter?
1: I'm sh- yeah. I mean, especially being a TV reporter, you get a lot of comments about your appearance not not from colleagues or, or superiors, but just people and in the world you know people on twitter you know i'll i'll do a i'll go on tv and i'll talk about something that i think is really interesting or it's really important and i'll come back and i'll like check my you know twitter feed and i'll be like oh i wonder if somebody cares about about this news and someone would be like cutie smiley face. And I'm like, well, at least it was a positive thing. <laughs> Sometimes I get off air and people are like, your hair really doesn't look good today. I'm like, thank you. So, you know, I don't know if that's a woman thing or if that's a TV thing. That's sort of the day-to-day feedback I get.
2: Yeah. I, I would say that appearance has never been an issue for me in my job, like ever. I, I, it just never comes up. It's not something I ever think about. And and I'll say, even in doing this show, and maybe this isn't for for our show, but I, I've had people make comments to me about partnering with Meg on this show and like how attractive she is, <laughs> and and I, I you know that
1: you're like I can't see her. This is a radio show. I,
2: well, uh, number one, it's a radio show, but you know, it just like struck me that why would that even occur. To, to you to bring up. I mean, that's just not what our show is about. And nobody ever talks to me like that. Well, I'm
1: sure a lot of people think it. <laughs> so there are also really important differences in the ways women and men go after new challenges. For example, Bosley is now in her second CEO role after selling her last company, the cancer drug maker Avola Therapeutics, to Celgene for $350 million up front and potentially half a billion more if Avola's drugs met certain goals. So, she's obviously a badass. But back before she made the jump to CEO, she said she questioned the timing of taking that leap.
3: The interesting thing was, I, you know, I had a number of conversations with folks about it just to, you know, Do you think I'm ready? This kind of thing. And a couple of incredibly important pieces of advice that I got. One was, if I'm asking the question, then for sure nobody else is going to think I'm ready. And if I couldn't say I was ready, why would anybody else think I was ready?
1: So I think something interesting about Katrine's point here is that it's not necessarily something only a woman would feel, but at the same time, I think a lot of women, maybe more than men, could identify with that feeling, like needing to know from somebody else, maybe, that you're ready.
2: Dunsire said a similar thing, that women tend to focus on the work and expect that it will be recognized, whereas men will freely advocate for themselves more vocally.
4: And that makes a difference. And when I counsel women, I I do counsel them to speak up about what they would like to do as a next step or when they think they would like to be stretched with a next step. Women tend to want 100% mastery before they declare themselves ready to move on to the next thing. Men are generally more comfortable when they're 80, there's a sort of 80% mastery to say, okay, now I'm ready to add more.
1: It's important to point out that so far, the women we've heard from in this episode are ones who are in charge of their own companies. There are many more women in this field who aren't in charge. And in some ways, they've got a lot more to lose. Many of them are afraid to share their stories because it would mean upsetting men they work for and jeopardizing future opportunities. One woman we spoke with experienced really horrifying sexism related to her appearance in her role as a senior manager. She since left her company, but she was afraid of speaking publicly because she thought it would make her virtually blacklisted in her field.
2: What do we do about all of this? In industry, some people have suggested quotas, and that's been heavily debated.
1: I think a lot of women feel this way, that we don't want to be sought out because we're women. We want to be sought out because we're awesome. And I think the problem is that our awesomeness sometimes... Won't be as recognized um, because people are just used to recognizing the awesomeness that mirrors their own awesomeness. And there happen to be a lot more men in the higher up roles. So one point that Katrine made that I thought was really important was, you know, where do CEOs come from? And what are the pools like of people who are being selected from? So the biotech industry needs to make sure that people are being put in those places to grow and that as they're looking to populate the next crop of leaders, um, that it's a a diverse uh, selection.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. Your um, comments remind me of the difference between tech and biotech. So in tech, you have I think, an even deeper systemic problem with the whole feeder system, where it's 90-10. There's a 90-10 difference. Unless
1: you add models.
2: <laughs> right. But but I, I think you have a strong case that there is a glass ceiling in biotech when you have pretty close to 50-50 balance of people entering the industry but very few women making it into the senior leadership positions that that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense
1: i it's a really great point it's actually something that we heard kind of a lot about you know on twitter as well as in our interviews that there's a, a limited pool of, of of similar names because people go back to the the tried and true, like proven people who've made it. And those are the folks that think, okay, well, we don't have enough women on our board. Let's call in Lisa Jenkins. You know, let's call Deborah Dunsire. Let's call Katrine Bosley. And these women are women who've made it. And there are a lot more women who who haven't yet made it, but who have the skills, have the experience, who also should get there.
2: Yes, I suspect, gosh, there's got to be a lot of other smart 30 something, 40 something women out there who are ready for this kind of opportunity. And we don't see them getting tapped on the shoulder to getting that door open for them.
1: And I think one of the biggest takeaways from what we've heard of a lot of women uh, that we spoke with is the work they're doing is so important and they're so inspired by it that, yes, they deal with this and yes this is a problem in this industry and other industries but they're going to do what they have to do to do this amazing
5: work so i have definitely you know skewed more masculine in how i dress which to me is like it's not it's not such a big deal i can understand for other people that would be but for me it's just like okay you know what i'm just doing what i have to do to get my job done
2: And that investor relations group that we told you about at the beginning of the show changed its tune after the letter in BioCentury came out. They pledged to do more to hire women and improve gender diversity in the industry.
1: And I have to admit, I rolled my eyes really hard when I read Bloomberg's follow-up article on this. And we got to give props to Bloomberg because they wrote about the party first and and they've been on the story. And I think if they hadn't written that article, we wouldn't be talking about this so much. But they were quoted, this life advisors group, were quoted saying, in this article where they were discussing how they've changed their ways, quote,
2: Women may have a great knowledge base,
0: but may not have the appropriate skill sets to get to a C-suite or board.
1: Sigh. I don't know if they meant it that way, but it's still so off base. But... Deborah Dunsire in our conversation gave me a different perspective on this. She said she talked with them after they apologized and they reached out to women in the industry.
4: When I asked them, I, you know, Michael, I, I said to him, "How did you get in this mess?" And he said, "You know, we we just didn't think. We we hmm. I I just we flat out honest with you. We, we we weren't thinking. It was it was." It was wrong. So, you know, when people flat out say, I was wrong, and now we want to be on a different path, I, I can be pretty forgiving.
1: It's helpful to hear you say that because from what I've read of their, you know, what they've done since, it almost seems like they still don't get it. I just thought, ugh.
4: I think that we can't, we can't win by not allowing people to change.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Signal. We're a production of STAT, a national news publication reporting from the frontiers of health and medicine. Our show is produced by Katie Heiler. Signal's senior editor is Jeff DelVisio. And we want to hear from you. Email us at signal at statnews.com or tweet us using the hashtag
2: signalpod. Next episode, how do drugs really work? Are they doing what we think they're doing? Some of our best known medicines are still mysteries. Next on Signal.